Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Hello, guys, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. Today is another one of my new shows, although we do kind of have a focus. Um, There is one thing that's kind of a continuation um, of stuff that I've been talking about on previous shows. I do actually plan to do a more structured blog that I'll probably put on the Zeitgeist Movement newsletter and perhaps submit to some of the other articles I've been offered to write on the People's Tribune and a couple of other places that go out to activists. So, um, First, let me introduce my guests. Uh, today I have with me Ben McLeish. Is that how you say your name? That's right, sir. It is indeed. Thank you for having me, Neil. You have been on before. I just wanted to be sure I didn't butcher your name. And um, Rick Powell, who some of you may remember from some of my YouTube videos before, as was a, a great radio show. Ray? Hi, <laughs> And uh, also Chris, also known as Meme Filter. Hi, Neil. How you doing? Not too bad. Um... Today I wanted to talk about a few different topics I've given you guys. Some of it's based on some articles. I'm also going to be playing some recordings. But uh, the first thing that I wanted to bring up as far as conversation is concerned is, like, I was thinking this morning as I was making my breakfast about a severe contrast, I guess is the word I would use, between the way that the two quote-unquote 9-11 attacks uh, were perpetuated. Now, um, I'm not discussing anything here. We're not going to get into conspiracy theory. That's not the point. It's more of a matter of we're going to talk about how the media treated the things. Um, right now, for example, uh, Fox News is doing a really heavy job of trying to make it look like the Obama administration did something terrible as far as you know a total lack of security or not enough attention to security in the consulate in Libya. And what I found really ironic about it is I went back and re- you know and thought about different. Uh, things that were brought up as far as, you know, any failures of security that were, you know, perpetuated in the original September 11th, 2001 attacks. And even just speaking to mainstream media here and not getting into any questions about um, any of the other issues surrounding 9-11, I remember very distinctly that you weren't even allowed to discuss that, you know, there were security failures. And, it went. They went through all kinds of loops and crap to, in order to get, you know, Condoleezza Rice, for example, to finally get up and testify, uh, you know, about the. I think they were called, yeah, you know, PDBs or whatever from the CIA saying, Bin Laden determined to attack the United States, um, and how that information was given to the White House at the time. Um, but the media did a really good job at that time of making it just like this sacrilege to ever even discuss the possibility of any failures on the part of the Bush administration when it came to security 9-11. Uh, but now it, it's all a big cover-up conspiracy by the Obama administration not to tell us about the truth of you know, the supposed security failures on 9-11. Um, I'm going to do, as I said, a more detailed report on this, but I was kind of curious just to get you guys' perspectives on this subject. Just the fact that it seems interesting that the media will embrace the idea of a failure in security when it benefits them and, you know, kind of toss it aside when it doesn't. Um, I'll start with you, Ben. Well, I mean, it's uh, it, it's always interesting to see how the media is essentially just this sort of, uh, how is it, how um, Robert Greenwald really recently put it with uh, the Koch brothers exposed it essentially just is this echo chamber of whatever you're allowed to speak about. It really isn't a reflection of anything um, uh, other than this, this bizarre um, 
soapboxing by by those who are in power. I know that I can only really relate this m most easily to when Tony Blair was prime minister in the UK. Obviously, I'm a I'm a Brit, as you can hear from my voice, hopefully. Um, and very often there were just newspaper articles everywhere in London that just ha carried, for example, the newspaper title "We Will Be Bombed." <laughs> just say Blair, <laughs> we will be bombed. That was it. And uh, he must be uh, he, he must be party to some information that we all didn't have other than himself. Uh, in which case, one would hope he would also have acted upon it. Um, so there's this, this tremendous fear that runs through all of it, and a, and a fear that I think ultimately really does uh, only uh, so solidifies further the sort of artificial national boundaries that we've we've come to expect and, and what we identify as being part of our own um, identity, um, our national identity. So that's certainly what I've seen. I was uh, lucky enough to be in L.A. in 2011 for September the 11th, 10 years on. And it's, it's very telling to see how the media chose to reflect that just even then. It was just over and over again, the usual talking points about terrorism and uh, the disastrous danger you might be in. Uh, never really does it ever get talked about that real failure of security that anybody might expect, whether it's in Libya, whether it's anywhere, is down to what you choose the nation or what comes about by the interaction of the nations uh, that promotes these kinds of behaviors. Um, it's, it's very telling to see that there are nations that don't have massive attacks like this. Uh, the very, very far northern Europe and Scandinavian uh, areas come to mind particularly, um, you know, with, with this kind of thing. So it's obviously not a universal thing that happens. So uh, I always think to myself, you know, it's a, it's a shame that that never gets talked about. The real security actually be the, the whole point of these things not occurring in the first place, that, you know, those situations should really be everything that we're pursuing and not uh, the bizarre, draconian, opportunistic way in which we just let them happen. Yeah, I definitely think you, you put a lot of good stuff in there, and it's interesting to hear the uh, the perspective from England, and I guess that, that kind of brings me to another question for you before we switch to another panelist. Uh, what is the news coverage on the issue of this this stuff that happened in Libya in, in England. How are they talking on it there with the BBC? Well, um, I mean, the first thing that was that was noted uh, was when I was listening to it, I was actually drinking a lot at the time, so I heard broad European coverage of it. Is it wasn't immediately obvious to us, or at least from what I'd heard, that it was a parallel of 9-11 at all, um, and that it might have been informed not just by some bizarre reactment or some kind of uh, harking back to the original attacks, but that it was also to do with the um, this, this awful film that made uh, The Innocence of Muslims, and that that was partly to do with that, and then it was well known it was going to be it was planned anyway, and it, and it came you know and it came up at that point. Um, so a lot of it was a tiny bit more even-handed. Uh, than I'd, I'd imagine uh, it would have been uh, by people like Fox News. None of it really, as, at least as far as I can see, and I'd have to plead ignorance on here, ever uh, blamed the Obama administration for not being good enough. Uh, that wasn't really a talking point over here because of course, there's, no, there's nothing to be gained from that. We can't vote for Obama, so it doesn't become a thing that's talked about. We're very telling. It then really gives you a clue as to why that is talked about uh, in America. These things sort of opportunized into uh, political, uh, you know, capital, if you like. 
Um, so that's as much as I saw from it then. It was it was very much more subtle. Oh, you know, it could be this film. Uh, other than that, no, it could have been a little bit earlier, and probably was, to be honest, a combination of both. I think. Um, we're a little bit more even-handed with that, but we're way less even-handed with national security issues of our own when we get um, put in the papers, because, of course, we do actually have uh, the political capital to be gained from uh, presenting um, a, a piece of uh, news in a certain way. You know, it's interesting, actually. There are a lot of great documentaries that come out of the BBC, and it didn't occur to me that one of the reasons why uh, European news, I often am like, wow, it seems like European news is more reliable. And then when you ask the Europeans, they're like, no, no, that's not true, you know. Um, and then it, you just kind of pointed it out is that there's really no motivation to spin news about what's going on in the United States, at least not as near, near as much as might be what's going on locally. Um, I mean, like the, I was actually, one of the reasons I keep chuckling is because they're trying to make this to be a thing now to be a, you know, an a organized Al Qaeda operation. And after watching The Power of Nightmares, the BBC Adam Curtis documentary that kind of debunks the entire myth of Al-Qaeda, you know, not that there is no Al-Qaeda necessarily, but just that they're far smaller than we've ever been led to believe here in the United States. Um, you know, it, it was, uh, my mouth was open when I was watching that documentary because I was like, wow, I can't believe anybody just put the exposure on this. And then they, they put a lot of attention on the neoconservatives, you know, who are kind of have a vested interest in inflating the Al Qaeda thing, um, and it you know you just kind of laid out for me I think why it might even be to to you know to discuss from a third party perspective you know the news um, you know as far as you know maybe you know even news outlets outside of the country might be better as far as lack of in for your own country's news. So that's right, and in fact you've actually named one of my favorite documentaries there. I mean the whole whole tying back and the sort of genesis of all of those ideas back to Leo Strauss is extremely important. And um, and this is the other thing you, you have to remember with, I mean, when that was shown, which I'm guessing like 2005, around then, something like that, we had such few uh, terrestrial TV stations. Now, obviously, we've all made the jump to digital. We all have 8,000 channels of, uh, of iPad commercials. But, um, you know, back then, really, just four or five channels. And so having all three parts of that shown on one of the five channels, in other words, a fifth of the mostly available media, was a huge effect. And and still is to these days. I mean, Cynthia McSweeney's, who was run by, uh, I forgot the name now, one of my one of my favorite uh, guys. McSweeney's actually republished those DVDs and gave them out free with their um, uh, Wolf in DVD magazine. It's an American outfit that did that. So it has spread hugely, and, uh, and I would hope with it some understanding of the slightly more complicated uh, sort of geopolitical and historical roots of what it means to um, uh, uh, demonstrate and personify to, uh, terrorism uh, in respect to a sort of a national body of people. Right. And that's, you know, the only thing I feel is difficult about trying to get people to watch that is that it doesn't get to the super meat until like near the end of part two and then in part three, you know, like when they're exposing that Bin Laden, the video that so many people have seen of him walking around with this group of terrorists was that those guys were actually paid actors who were said, hey, uh, take this AK-47 and put on a ski mask and follow him around. We need to make this Al-Qaeda thing look really big so we can get the world in on it, you know. And that's, <laughs> you know, it, it it got to the point where I was laughing. Like, I, it's not <laughs> funny, but I was laughing, yeah. you know, because of yeah. how ridiculous it was that we were so duped with this stupidity. But, all right, um, I'm going to move on to you, Ray. What is your impression? 
Well, uh, yeah, you know, you've asked me, and you know, it was interesting because uh, you're trying to focus on the media spin, and that's and that's an int- uh, definitely an important topic. But you know, I don't know any of the media spin because <laughs> uh, I don't pay any attention to the media whatsoever, like zero. I, as a matter of fact, I was so proud to announce last night on my Facebook that I had no idea there was a presidential debate last night. And truly am really, really glad that I am unaware of these things. It makes me feel like I really am. <laughs> it makes me feel like I really am living in a world of, of reality where I'm not being programmed and not being um, distracted by this nonsense. And What's a president? Uh, what? I said, what's a president? Mm-hmm. Talk about being disconnected. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? The, the latest, right, the latest puppet. But, um, you know... Um, uh, so this 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 uh, my take on on this uh, embassy thing. Well, you just I've, I've heard I've heard little about it. I didn't know what happened on nine eleven, and I didn't know that uh, um, that there was a big deal being made about it in the media. So that's all that's all new information. Now um, for me, um, <laughs> I uh, have to answer the phone. So we'll go to Chris and go ahead and mute yourself, Ray. <laughs> okay. Incoming. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I thought Ben nailed it, really. Uh, and you can see it in the dichotomy of American versus foreign markets. While we are talking about media, uh, there's and, – and I'm going to come back to this a lot on your show, aren't I? How uh, <laughs> economics, and when you're talking to an audience that understands economics and advanced economics especially, it's the best – It's if not the best, a very good way to analyze what's really going on. And foreign media markets have very little incentive to report the American slant on things. And if you look why, you can say because the American slant is funded by dollars. And then you get into the relationship of why uh, various parties, and remember, you got MSNBC, CNN, and all these people, they appear to be fighting with each other, and maybe they are, but they're doing it. Uh, after the fact, to an event they didn't really expect coming because it was arguably not, if it was organized, probably wasn't organized by the typical Al-Qaeda, which loves to send out their messages on YouTube, don't we know? Right. So on, on, the, on something like 9-11, uh, all eyes immediately turned, and uh, I don't know if people knew it was coming or not, but they shut their mouths and stopped trying to put a political spin on it for the most part. Not so on this case. Immediately the American incentives, the factions get to work trying to blame Obama. It's nice that it happened in an election cycle. And I'm sure somewhere in Singapore is a journalist going, I cannot believe the American audience buys this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that we've definitely, you know, covered a lot of good ground on this. And overall, I I generally kind of try to tell people that it's, it comes back to something that Ben Stewart, the maker of Kaimanic and Esoteric Agenda, said. I keep talking about this one thing that he pointed out in one of his videos for his Hangman project, which is kind of his movement that he's putting together. Um, and it was that even when the United States supposedly was freed from the monarchy, they did not really perceive or truly understand or grasp the concept of free. Like, their initial reaction was, oh, okay, so we're going to make George Washington the king now, right? You know, and it goes far beyond just the issue of their understanding human governance or the other options that were presented to them. It was also just that people don't necessarily understand all of the responsibility that goes into being free. And I, I guess for me now, it's I've been trying to figure out a way to coalesce all of these thoughts that I've had and figure out a way to express it, you know, without repeating myself too much. But it's it's basically that 
I look around, like, you know, the other day I was talking to a lady, you know, in a restaurant, and she was talking to me about why she supported Romney. And, you know, I it came to a point in the conversation where I realized, okay, we are now to the point that I'm, I'm not going to get through to her. She's she's never going to listen to me. You know, um, and so I just kind of politely nodded and smiled and let her continue. And it just occurred to me that, you know, I even gave her a couple of things to look at. You know, like, did you watch the 47% video? Did you watch... You know, the stuff, you know, it's especially when you spit out the elephants in the room, and that'll be a good segue in my portion of today's show just to be talking about how the debates went, um, is that, you know, I pointed out, well, you know, the, yeah, okay, so Obama, you know, didn't lower unemployment as much as he said, but you do realize that the president actually doesn't really have as much control over unemployment as you might think that most unemployment is caused by companies like Romney's outsourcing to third world countries or automating their jobs. And she kind of looked at me blank for a moment and then just went on talking because she didn't want to face that. And for the most part, even mainstream politicians don't face that. And there was only one time when I was watching the debates last night that I could even say that I was, you know, cheering essentially was like, I just spent the whole debate angry that they kept saying, create jobs, create jobs, create jobs. We're going to create jobs, create jobs, create jobs. Like I've said on so many other episodes of E-Radio, no politician is going to be willing to do what's necessary to create jobs. And most of them don't really want to talk about why there are no jobs. Um, that They will feed you the trickle-down economic theory that if you cut taxes to the rich, that that will somehow create jobs. The problem is, is that that's already been done. It was done by Bush in his four years as president. And, oh, lo and behold, look at this. We have this huge unemployment rate, you know, because everything's getting outsourced overseas. People don't want to talk about that. And they even have hot-button ways of making it not okay to talk about that in the same way it was not okay to talk about security failures for 9-11. It's to say, oh, are you racist? You know, do you hate the Chinese people? Do you hate the Mexicans? Do you hate the people in India and Bangladesh? Is that why you're talking about outsourcing? You know, those people need jobs, too. <laughs> and it was just like, um, okay, um, I'm just trying to demonstrate to you realistically that it's impossible for us to maintain an economy when we send all of our jobs overseas. You know, and they don't want to talk about that, you know, obviously. And it's it's this elephant in the room. I mean, an elephant – no, it's not an elephant. It's a blue whale in the room about what's really going on with jobs and where they're going and how in many cases, I mean, they're not going back, which is why I was, I was surprisingly relieved last night when Obama said many of the jobs are not coming back and finally, finally spit out that a lot of it is due to outsourcing and jobs going overseas. And he finally spelled that uh, Romney's company actively outsources. You know, that's not even something that you have to just for spin to find. He said it in his own words, the alleged 47% video. The state's just about the 47% of the people who vote for him were only part of it. The, the part where he's describing, you know, have you seen these uh, these sweatshops at these, these, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you can get the exact quotes. I actually did a whole show about that video, which you guys can find in the archives. You know, he describes in detail how the ladies work, you know, for his company in these sweatshop labor you know, situations where you pack like ten women into a room and to put up barbed wire fences and guard hours to be sure that people sneak in and try to work, you know. And that's exactly what you know, and like when when he's saying things like, I want us to be more attractive employers, but I want people to come back to America. Like, okay, so you're gonna eliminate minimum wage, eliminate basic 
standards for workers. You're going to eliminate overtime. You're going to eliminate benefits. You're going to eliminate you know, uh, all basically everything that is you know that the labor movement accomplished. You know, because the and, and that's the the silly thing about the whole thing. When they tell you they're going to create jobs, when they tell you they're going to fix the economy, and they don't address the basic concept that the reason we don't have any and the reason we're not going to get any is because companies are going to places where they can essentially hire people who will work for you know, will work in a lifestyle that is as good or worse than plantations, you know, on the you know, slave plantations in early United States. You know, nobody wants to talk about that. And it got touched on just a little bit, you know, um, by Obama uh, during the debate last night. And I honestly still don't think he's doing anything to fix it either. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's it's interesting to me how little people will talk about that. And the only guy I know who would who would was the independent Lou Dobbs. Uh, Lou Dobbs talked about outsourcing constantly, um, so much that it actually, you know, like it's one of the reasons I'm pretty sure the mainstream wanted to get rid of him because he can shut up about it because nobody else is talking about it. You know, and basically, you know, it, and then Ben, I'm going to kind of segue into this. You know, it's interesting to me that it, people, uh, we, you know, they do talk about some of the symptoms, but the ones that are the most glaringly obvious as to why we're in the economic situation that we're in just get glossed over. I mean, I, I doubt there's, I mean, like, I, I don't know much about England's economy, but do you guys have an outsourcing situation over there? Actually, I was uh, I was about to relate to you a story I got from last week. I met a man who uh, produces a very beautiful uh, blank paper books, books you can just sort of write, a little bit like those model scheme books. And he said he was actually, he was Canadian. He said he was actually insulting from China to the uh, to, to Canada. And I said, well, how are you doing? <laughs> and he said the one thing that's absolutely true. He said, automation is the only way I can do it. Uh, he said, I'll bring it back. It saves on the delivery cost. So somewhat saves on the fact that I'm, you know, contributing to the burning of a massive amount of hydrocarbons by moving mega tankers around that are bringing all this stuff from China or elsewhere. But ultimately, I'll be, I'll be insourcing and I'll be automating. Now, why is that? Well, obviously, the first reason being, if you drop the uh, dependent on labor, you also drop your dependence upon having to pay a wage. And, of course, then you make your uh, your products cheap enough to be able to sell back into an economy that has become used to uh, an almost artificial low level of cost for items that have been uh, either produced um, by, by extreme slave labor or that were produced through automation to begin with. So even the insourcing is actually a complete lie, basically. It's it's not going to produce more jobs. What it'll do is produce things closer to you for you to buy with less jobs. And uh, so that's that's something I found entertaining. I didn't talk too much about what I do. Cause I, was on a, I was on a work trip, and I tend to uh, be uh, uh, what is it? I tend to be uh, stealth in that mode. I just try and sneak the ideas in. Um, but England's economy. Well, let's have a look at us. Um, well, we're a small island. Uh, we used to run the world. Uh, Bill uh, and everyone else, do you mind giving us our copies back, please? No, um, you can't and- have them. We're <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. In fact, one of the greatest that ever is the uh, is the American independence. Um, but you know, we, we've got a, a dilemma here. We have a very small landmass. We have quite a, a big population for the landmass that we inhabit. I mean, Germany around 80 million people and is much bigger than we are. Uh, we're much smaller. We're something like 60 million people, I think. Last time I checked. 
Um, a great deal was agriculture, but the common European market means that we've ended up importing a lot of cheap stuff. And I mean, now I walk around the supermarket, every single grown item is from Argentina or from somewhere else. We're a very importer nation, and we rely, instead of being a massive exporter nation, not really that big on export, the, the, the huge part of our economy, or at least a sizable chunk of it that's, that sort of walks against this, is that we're essentially a service economy. Or at least we were until um, clever notation and voice recognition and call centers in India meant that suddenly our services actually could be almost live throughout the day, uh, whether I'm calling my, my bank. And so it, it's had somewhat of an effect there. Having said that, our employment, as of yesterday, just dropped to, I think it's like 5 million people or something. Now, I haven't looked into why it is, but I'd imagine it's probably because, um, like the trick that Wall's, uh, Walmart likes to do, it creates jobs that they call full-time jobs that are 15 hours a week. It might be down to something like that, or it might be some 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 tendential small thing, but the overall trend is not a good one. And especially if you align our unemployment numbers to count for those who have stopped seeking work, which is a trick that we learned from you in, in the early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's we have the same pressures, but add to that we don't have the landmass of the U.S. Uh, we were originally service, and we we've, we've ended up importing a little bit more than 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 I think even you guys do. I think I'm not sure. Now. Um Chris, uh, as far as the issue of discussing the, the, the concept of outsourcing and how it affects the economy and how it's the real cause of unemployment, what would you say? Uh, well, I think the real cause of unemployment has always been obsolescence, uh, is that technology moves on and skills don't, and people end up losing their jobs. So people, you know, uh, you could make a or lack of a better word, a socialist argument that uh, any state or nation should invest in the training of its brains for uh, long-term viability. Uh, but I have an anecdote which uh, sums it up, tells ties back to the debates pretty well, too. Uh, and uh, let me say this, too. Before, before I get into that, the automated process isn't going to end, Okay. People need to understand that the nature of jobs is shifting. You don't need to have – maybe there will be a boutique market for knife sharpeners, for really professional people who go and sharpen knives by hand for chefs in a crystal palace with, I don't know, red velvet or something like that. But most of it will be done by machine. Why? Because machines are better, they're faster, efficient, and they don't need to eat. You don't need to give a maternity leave. So anything that can be replicated through automation is going to be so. And if you're in a manufacturing job, just you know, lay down and die now because it's over. It's already gone. There's the last few things of tightening nuts and bolts left in the mechanical manufacturing market, unless you're in software and media. And you're just going to have to accept the reality that we don't need you to build cars anymore. So Detroit, you can go to hell. Right. To bring that back around is an anecdote Uh I read a long time ago an analysis uh, by an economist who was explaining how a publicly traded company like Microsoft has no incentive to publicize security flaws. This is crazy. Let's For a brief second, let's talk about Mitt Romney saying corporations are people. Okay, maybe they are. Maybe they're legal fictions and persons or something like that. But that doesn't mean they're smart. Everyone knows they're not ethical, right? They have a different thing called monetization. But that doesn't mean they're smart or good at it. 
and instead you case like Microsoft in this one. The stock goes down anytime they report a bug. Anytime anyone says Microsoft security flaw found, the stock goes down, and that is antithetical to the purpose of the corporation. So the corporation has extremely strong incentive to hide every security flaw that happens, even though in publishing the security flaw, they get thousands of researchers to solve the problem. So Microsoft is, in effect, by its goal of being profitable in the stock market, is making an intentionally insecure product. And this is the same with the government, with the jobs report. Mitt Romney and Barack Obama have no interest in actually telling you where the jobs went, why, or what they're going to do about getting them back, because there's nothing they can do. But that's not what gets people to vote. And that's not what separates the blue team into the red team, where the people will sit and argue over the beers they continue to consume about where all the jobs went. As long as you're drunk and not noticing, you won't care that your job is gone. You'll keep getting lottery tickets. In underneath all of this is the economic manifestation of why people choose. And the fact is, is it, it sells more votes. It sells more cars. It sells more snacks. Uh, snacks, Doritos, if people just simply think that the Pablum answer is true. You know, the CIA said a long time ago, when everything every American believes is false, we'll have done our jobs. And, you know, props to you, CIA, because you're well on your way. People think that jobs are created by politicians. It's crazy. But yet, there it is. You know, and uh, that kind of segued into a point that uh, I wanted to make, that somebody's linking a photo that actually is really hilarious. And... It's got a picture of Romney from the debate last night, and it says, Since 90 minutes claiming that he'd create jobs as president, then the big closing statement, government does not create jobs. <laughs> so he, he went on talking about how he's going to create these 12 million jobs or whatever, and then at the end, when he's arguing with Obama, like right at the very, very end, um, like the funny thing is, is it, it was actually something he said into the mic as the mic was being cut, government does not create jobs. So he knows that he can't go before the audience and say that you know that government doesn't create jobs. Um, the funny thing about this, and this kind of brings me back to one more thing I wanted to point out, was in 2008 here in the state of Michigan, because you brought up Detroit and the auto jobs, uh, Romney won Michigan as far as Republicans were concerned, and he beat McCain. It was one of the states he beat McCain in. And the funny thing is uh, Romney lied. He said, no, no, we can get the jobs back. McCain told the truth and said the jobs aren't coming back. The, the auto industry is gone. You guys need to reform your state's economy around some other means of you know of making money. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. By no means am I a McCain fan, but you get my point. Was that it was ironic that you know McCain told the truth and therefore lost because people are still clinging to this idea that you know that the government is going to be able to fix this situation for them. And the only way it's going to happen is to do a bunch of things that no politician is ever going to do. It, it would be suicide to go back to, say, tariffs, like the original Constitution had intended, was tariffs on goods created overseas under the understanding you have to protect your local manufacturers or your local economy dies. You know, it's, it's very basic, simple stuff. You know, and at the same time in that debate, he said that he wanted to get hard on China but you know, but then he wants to open free trade. You know, NAFTA, the ironically a thing, and you know, don't get me wrong, this is both sides of the aisle problem. You know, is the reason we're in this situation in the first place? All of the quote unquote free trade, and that's that's why we have cheap goods coming in from these places where people will you know will work for nothing and and basically be excellent producers. 
So um, first, I'm going to ask uh, Ray. Are you still there, or are you back? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, I'm go- waiting. Yeah, I'm go ra- ahead. I'm ready to go here, buddy. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to be sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, um, it's it seems to me that you know we're you mentioned how a lot of people are, are listening to this information and kind of missing the real point. It seems that we're doing a lot of that here as well, because mm. ultimately, you know, all this stuff, whether you're talking about the media spin on bombings or whether you're talking about the presidential debate or more specifically, whether you're talking about what the, they said in that debate about creating jobs or not, we're all under this kind of paradigm as if it's okay that there is a class who has the ability to tell us whether we have this thing called a job or not, sure. uh, or or that we ought to depend on them to buy such things. Um, so in one aspect, you're, we're missing the personal responsibility aspect of that, and that what you want or need a job is only a society training thing, uh, when uh, we, you know, every human is perfectly capable of walking out, digging in the dirt, and growing some stuff, and building themselves a shelter, um, we may be getting back to a to a point where that is the only op- kind of options we have, or or that is a much more real option, uh, or a more real thing that's going to be facing people in life. I think that'll be an okay kind of thing, um, because largely what that's going to do is get us back on a real mindset again in that we don't need anybody to create us a job. We don't even want their stupid job. What we want to do is live our lives um, and raise our families. And to the extent that uh, technology enables our lives to become easier, uh, technology is the, is the thing also that we talk about that is, quote, killing the jobs. Right. So, I mean, um, we want technology. We want our lives to be easier. What the problem is is that um, – the efficiencies created through technology are not being shared among the populace. They're not, in other words, when new technology comes out that makes it easier to grow food, that makes a better big material for your homes uh, so you can keep a roof over your head, uh, or that makes it easy for you to, to teach your children the things of um, the world that they ought to know. Um, the technologies are all being implemented in ways that benefit um, an elite class and do not benefit the general populace. And, you know, when we start to rethink that situation, um, and uh, then we'll start to realize that, that all of these issues are really just repairings, um, and that, that we, we, can, we can yell each other till we're blue in the face about all this and, and not agree because we're not talking about anything that, that is really the root core. So, um, you know, getting back to that restructuring the way we think about economics and society in general is probably where we're head one way or the other. And you know, like employee incorporations are are probably the way of the future. You know, we've talked about that at length. So that we do have technology and and way of implementing things that do make life better. It is not it is not going to be owned by guys who are friends with bankers who can print money out of thin air and then hire all the labor they need to implement their scheme. It's going to implement it because people come together, decide that this is a good thing for their community, or this is a good thing for their 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 locality, um, largely, and their society in general, and that they'd like to have the benefits of this new technology, and that by working together we can achieve this technology, and in working together and creating an efficiency that that is good for everybody. Well, 
it's going to be shared by everybody and that the employee owners of this company who are the specific ones to implement the technology, while they may have a special uh, care and take in the implementation of new technology and maybe possibly have more to gain personally by the, the successful implementation of it through their system or the factory, largely they're also going to be making sure that they're not being overly greedy about it as well, that that, that the, the efficiencies created through this new technology will benefit society as a whole, and I think that's a natural thing that will occur in, a, in an employee-owned corporation. Um, so I, that's And that's just one example of the many new ways of rethinking economics and politics that are definitely in our future. For sure. Now, obviously, we've, we've spent a good amount of time on this, so I don't want to spend too much longer on it because we have some other stuff to get to in this hour. But, um, you know, and that, I think, kind of brings us back to, you know, what a lot of the people in the Zeitgeist movement have been talking about, a lot of people just around the world. And I've suggested this for an anarchist, for example, that, you know, we've now come to a point where the system is going to fail inevitably. Um, I don't bring up the job issue because I expect or believe that a politician is going to create jobs for me. It's mostly a matter of, I think, that people need to recognize that the paradigm is shifting in a position where the 1% they are labeled, you know, really have no interest in employing us. So we either need to find sustainable means, you know, by which to take care of ourselves or perish. That's just the way it is. Um, and in so doing, we will take a lot of power away from them because right now, as it is, they are doing best to make us as dependent on them as consumers as possible. So I'm looking forward to moving towards for the future of that. So now I want to bring on uh, – we're going to move on to a different topic. And uh, I have to say I was astonished – this was linked on Guys Movement Global today uh, – that a local Fox News channel, Fox 19 – uh, made this really candid report on the actual nature of, of debates and how people get into them. Some of you might remember this from Peter Joseph's recent, actually, uh, first episode of Culture and Decline about kind of the illusions of democracy. Um, he talked about how people get into the debates. Now, why this is so important mostly has to do with the fact of understanding that this is the control of information. They don't want certain candidates to be heard. And there is now, however, a movement and a change in that direction. And I've reported on this before, and I still urge you guys to consider checking it out, even if you don't plan on voting, just to get an idea about what it is that's being actively excluded. Um, and that brings me to a new piece of news about the free and equal uh, debates that I've been telling you guys about that will be attended by Jill Stein of the Green Party, Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party, um, the representative of the Constitution Party, and Rocky Anderson of the Justice Party, who you might have also heard of, you know, like once again on an episode of E-Radio, I interviewed the guy. Sounds great. Um, and Larry King is going to moderate this debate. Uh, not only is it going to be put up on Al Jazeera, as I reported on the previous episode, now Russia Today will be picking up the stream for this debate of third-party candidates. So that little piece of information being brought together in that, I mean, you know, it's it's really good, however, that these third-party candidates are starting to get mainstream attention. So I wanted to go ahead and play a clip here. Uh, this comes from the, uh, you know, the Fox clip that I was telling you about earlier. Now, it's important to point out, like, and I found this out actually when I was out at Occupy Detroit because there were people who showed up in a Fox News van, and everybody at Occupy Detroit was very untrusting. They were afraid they were dealing with corporate Fox News. I went over and talked to the guy, and he pointed out that the majority of small Fox News conglomerates actually have very little oversight from the part of the corporate Fox News. It doesn't mean that you absolutely trust everything, but these people also, like, you know, I talked to the guy about the movie Out Foxed. He had seen it. 
totally agreed without Fox, Rupert, uh, Rupert Murdoch's war on journalism, and was out there with a rare opportunity to get, you know, occupy Detroit, you know, in the word out. And ironically, I mean, he did make, he did do a positive thing about us on the TV that day. So, you know, still have to be careful, but it's important to remember that some of the people, a lot of people, well, some, a lot of the people at these stations are real people, just like you and me, you know, who aren't sucked into some corporate cult. So, that being said, I'm going to get to this uh, this but this uh, posting here that I said that I saw earlier. You can get the links to this on my stuff, so I mean my Facebook, um, and we will get from there. We carried it live as President Obama and Governor Mitt Romney held their first of three presidential debates. But one local teacher was surprised to find out with her students recently that these two men aren't the only two running for president. So why are there only two candidates debating? Ben has the reality check you won't see anywhere else. The email I received was from Karen, a computer teacher at Queen of Peace Elementary School. Karen's working with sixth graders on a poster project about the campaign. Quote, I'm having the students research the candidates, finding facts, developing a campaign poster, and then voting on election day. We did an early voting experience yesterday before they did any research. I then found a website that listed all of the candidates that were running. And surprise to everyone, there is more than Romney and Obama running. Well, Karen's right on. There are more candidates running. In fact, here in Ohio, there are at least nine candidates on the ballot. Aside from the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the Libertarian Party, the Constitution Party, the Green Party, even the modern-day Whig Party. So the question, why, if we're not a two-party country, do we have debates that include candidates from only major parties? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's something called the Commission on Presidential Debates. The CPD was established in 1987. According to its website, its mission is to ensure that debates, as a permanent part of every general election, provide the best possible information to viewers and listeners. Well, what a noble mission. But it begs the question, if the goal is to provide the best possible information to viewers and listeners, how can you do that with only two candidates being given time to speak? You do have to have some criteria, though, don't you? Well, of course. And the CPD has three criteria. In order to be included, a candidate, number one, must meet the constitutional requirements to be elected president. Understandable. Why allow someone to debate if they can't legally become president? Number two, they must be on the ballot in enough states to win the electoral college. Again, understandable. If a candidate cannot mathematically win, there's no reason to put them in a national debate. But then there's number three. They must have received at least 15% support in five national polls. Well, that one is much less reasonable. But that 15% support rule is fairly new. In fact, how the CPD came into existence is pretty interesting. In 1976, 1980, and 1984, the League of Women Voters moderated presidential debates. They then walked away from it, saying that the demands of the two parties, Republican and Democrat, would perpetuate a fraud on the American people. The CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, as we know it today, was then formed by the Republican and Democrat parties. The commission is headed up by Frank Ferenkopf, a former head of the Republican National Committee, and former Clinton White House Press Secretary Michael D. McCurry. So let's be clear. A debate commission that's run by former bigwigs from the Republican and Democrat parties and creates a 15% polling rule in five national polls isn't trying to create inclusion. They're trying to prevent it. If you don't have the money of the two big parties, getting your name out nationally to get into those polls, well, it can only happen if you're a billionaire like Ross Perot. Aside from billionaires, no one else has a chance. This lack of inclusion is finally getting some attention, though. 
This year's debates, which are funded by sponsors, just lost three of their ten sponsors. Phillips Electronics, BBH New York, and the YWCA. They have all pulled their sponsor money because of the lack of inclusion of one particular candidate, Libertarian candidate and former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. Governor Johnson is the next highest polling candidate after President Obama and Governor Romney. But when he is included in polling, the effect he's having is significant. For instance, on Wednesday, Gravis Marketing and Capital Correspondent released results from Ohio from a poll conducted September 21st through the 22nd. That poll included 594 likely voters, and it covered the presidential race and the Senate elections. Take a look. In that poll, Obama-Biden, 45%. Other or unsure, 10%. Romney-Ryan, 44%. But then, Gary Johnson's name was added, and here's how the numbers shook out then. Johnson, 10%. Obama-Biden, 44, other unsure, 7, Romney-Ryan, 37%. So what you need to know, the fastest growing segment of the American electorate, independent voters. 43% of undecided swing voters are independents, and it's all about trajectory. Independent voters have been on the rise, while the parties have been playing to a shrinking base. There are now six states where independents outnumber both Republicans and Democrats. And that growing segment of the population isn't looking for fewer options. They're looking for more. This election could be an historic last for the control of this two-party system. And that is Reality Check. If you'd like to make your voice heard on the story, head over to Ben's Facebook page. Find it by searching Ben Swan, WXIX. So I'm really sorry about any sound problems that were on that clip. Um, I basically had to upload an MP3 to Blog Talk Radio, and uh, for whatever reason, I've been having sound trouble with them every now and then, and I'm going to call them up and deal with that. So I apologize, although it sounded like it was still completely legible. But basically, he just laid it out. He laid out that the debates are controlled by a commission that is headed up by one Republican and one Democrat, You know, both of which are former bigwigs in their parties. And so, yeah, obviously, it's not really in their vested interest to see these third-party candidates, you know, included. Um, exclusion of candidates in a debate is known to be a, a typical tactic, okay? Like, when I ran for Congress in the 10th District of Michigan against Candace Miller, you know, I became friends with a Democratic candidate who did show up to all the debates, including the ones with only third-party candidates. And Candace Miller just flat-out refused to debate him ever. Because she had nothing to gain. She had such a strong lead in her uh, district that, you know, actually getting an opportunity to be held accountable for the things that she was doing was not really to her benefit. So uh, then you run into a situation that basically kind of amounts to, you know, once again, control of information, control of the flow of information. You know, and when it comes to stuff like this, another reason why debates are important, and I think that any activists, including those who don't, are not interested in voting, should take a note is that the reason why many of us are even here is because of people like, for example, Congressman Ron Paul. Now, I know that a great deal of my listeners don't agree with Congressman Ron Paul's, you know, who's on a lot of things, but on the same token, he is the reason that we even know about Federal Reserve. The 2008 uh, election that he participated in brought a lot of attention to the Federal Reserve and a lot of attention to a lot of other things. I would not even have heard of Zeitgeist if it was not for Ron Paul, because a lot of the parts of Zeitgeist 1 and the, the talk of talks about the Federal Reserve uh, were central to that, and that led to me, um, you know, because they, those were recommended to me by a lot of Ron Paul people during the 2008 campaign. That led to me watching Addendum, and um, you know, and obviously moving forward and being involved as I am in what I'm doing now. The, the reality is, is that participation in the debates is a great way to spread out, you know, information, and that kind of brings me back to what I said in my very first article. 
for the Zeitgeist newsletter when we put it out was use the use the political system as a soapbox. Is an angle that you can do to create real change. You know, yeah, we're not going to get a resource-based economy to happen overnight with it, but um, as Socialist Party candidate Brian Moore said on my show many years ago, the, a great deal of the differences that you see in the Democratic Party were accomplished because at one time the Socialist Party was making a big splash uh, they had all of the labor behind them, all the workers behind them, and the Democrats realized that they either had to change to accommodate a lot of the views that were expressed by the Socialist Party, or they were going to lose votes to the Socialist Party. You know, does that suddenly mean that's the way to handle it? No, it isn't. And that's why I voiced my own personal opinion that I that it would probably be better if you want to do a protest vote to consider voting for the Green Party. Um, just because their, their their platform is very close to a lot of the things we espouse in the Zeitgeist Movement. But that is, again, my opinion and not a, an official stance of the Venus Project or the Zeitgeist Movement. Um, although Peter and Jacques Fresco have both acknowledged the benefits of using the political system as a soapbox. So now we've we've talked a little bit about, you know, obviously we, we exposed a little bit here about how the debates work, who gets into the debates, who does not get into the debates. And what motives of the, you know, essentially the collective media, you know, would would have to doing this? And you know, I mean, we've seen, for example, like way back in 2008, you know, they they control it beyond the debates. I still remember the video of a Fox News guy um, intentionally telling his cameraman, okay. Um, yeah, I don't want you to film any of these Ron Paul people over here. There was like 30 Ron Paul people standing there with signs, very excited, very happy. Uh, turn the camera over here to the Giuliani people and, you know, maybe get some of those Romney people. Like they were intentionally going out of their way to be sure that, you know, Ron Paul did not get any exposure. Uh, they do the same thing on both sides of the aisle. They went out of their way to marginalize my friend Mike Gravel, uh, marginalize uh, Congressman Kucinich. Um, you see it in the amount of time that people get to talk during debates. I think it was actually during the documentary, The Corporation, they did kind of a, um, a stop-motion collection to show you just how long each candidate was allowed to speak in the debates. And Mike got like five minutes, and uh, Kucinich got like six minutes, and Hillary got 30 out of an hour debate. Um, how you can ever explain that math? You know, it's half the debate was Hillary talking. You know, without it being in some way uh, on purpose, this is just ridiculous. You don't see it quite as much when you have only two people on the podium. But by that point, they've already marginalized your choices and the kind of ideas you're going to be exposed to. So, um, And that kind of brings me also just to ask, like, the, the English perspective. So, Ben, um, what are the debates like in England when you're seeing, like, the Labour Party? And I'm going to forget. The, isn't it just – don't you guys just call it, like – Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's, so we've got the Labour Party, which really speaks to a point you were bringing up, like voting for the Greens and whatever. And voting, I mean, we have the Green Party over here as well. We have precisely exactly one seat in Parliament for the Green Party, so that's great. Uh, the Germans have more because they, for some reason, in their genetics almost, in, the, in their country's thinking, they, they very much take the environment very seriously and always have. But um, uh, the, um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound fine. Okay, fantastic. Um, yeah, we call them the conservatives. There's all the liberal Democrats who were never really, for very, for very, uh, for a very long time, in the limelight, except as to be a soundboard for mainstream policy to argue with mainstream policy. But in 2010, they uh, merged with the conservatives in order to get into power because there was not enough of the margin to be first past post. So now we actually have a what, what we call a, 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 a condemnation. Uh, a conservative democrat nation and condemnation is, is valid for that too what might surprise you Neil 
is that I had to check this before the show as well because I couldn't quite believe it myself as an Englishman, uh, is we have never had debates uh, uh, upcoming live on TV the way you have until 2010. That was the first time. And they are modeled very closely on the US format. So there are podiums, people stand, there's a live studio audience. They're a lot smaller, and they don't have quite as, as many uh, fun graphics associated with them. But that's the first time we did it. Of course, our, our um, debates with politicians uh, most regularly on TV. We have something called Question Time, where a lot of, um, a lot of journalists and a lot of uh, politicians go on, but they're not necessarily linked to upcoming elections. They're just something that's on almost every single night. So what that's, that I thought was rather interesting, is we, we tend to have um, paid-for official events during which they speak, um, and only recently have introduced the idea of a head-to-head, literally vying for the top job sort of uh, interview process, if you like. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, one, one thing I wanted to add, um, having watched uh, last night's debate, or at least a portion of it, uh, for the, between Romney and Obama, is that um, it's very interesting to see not only that the talking points are obviously shrouded within the two particular parties that have been allowed to get in by the corporation that has essentially voted for them, but they had a head-to-head argument about fossil fuels, and nowhere was there anything about sustainable energy. Nothing. It wasn't actually a thing that is recognized, let alone even something to have a policy about. It's how did you treat the corporations that are drilling oil? Did you make them sit on, you know, what's it, they, they can sit on forever, 20 years, 10 years. It's all irrelevant. <laughs> that stuff's running out, man. Right. It's a little bit like uh, in, in, a, in some kind of weird playground game. Uh, becoming obsessed with one of the meaningless rules of a game that is not going to let you win overall anyway, but as long as you have it, you just sort of hold on to it. So I found that really bizarre, given the fact that I believe Arizona is actually building a phenomenally large solar array at the moment, and it might actually be phenomenally larger, where it actually a talking point, where it actually an attitude that you can have towards the environment, where it actually something that can be uh, exposed, if you like, at this point, uh, of uh, as, a, as a valid, and in fact, the only valid direction. So I that really surprised and upset me, um, and well, upsets me locally here as well because we just started hydraulic fracturing over here in the UK, as if as if that was any kind of solution to anything. Wow. So I mean, that's yeah. So I mean, even if we were to get five or six of the presidential nomination guys, or the twenty that, that are that are referenced in that Fox News article, I think it was, it it very much comes down to the overarching attitude of politics towards the environment. Anyway, uh, they could all have the wrong talking points, and your choices are still improved. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, so yeah, that's my two bits on that. For sure. Um, you know, and it's interesting you brought that up, and I, it makes me compelled to think about this. Is Romney, for example, is really uh, appealing to the coal? And oil lobby, um, he's talking about, well, you know, these coal miners, they're worried they're going to lose their jobs. I mean, and this is kind of what (laughs) brings me back to, and don't get me wrong, I don't want people to be unemployed, obviously, but at the same token, that's not a sustainable way to do things. And it's like, that brings us back to why we talk about we need to evaluate things from a scientific perspective and a rational perspective, rather than just politicians who are playing to whoever is there. You know, because unfortunately, it's not in the best interest of the world to keep using coal. It's not in the best interest of the world to keep using oil. It might be popular because there are people making money on it, including the people who are employed, but it doesn't it doesn't make the right choice. You know, I mean, it's just anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, yes. Not yeah. serving. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no. We're talking about uh, how people did the debates. 
excuse me, I did not see that one coming, and it had a mouthful of Blueberry Newton, which I highly recommend. And we have hubberries around here. AG just made hubberry syrup for pancakes. So, uh, awesome. When uh, Ray was talking about how anyone can get out there with their bare hands and start getting things done, yeah, you really can. You get uh, huckleberry pancake syrup out of it. Yeah, I did a I'm, – I'm not going to paste the link in because that may have been what crashed my audio a minute ago. Uh, you can search for it on Black, Brad Blog, and it's a uh, Romney company owns voting machines. And that's not even what I was really looking for. But it's a real case point. Uh, you know, uh, Ray said on a conversation I was having with him, Alex Jones did really well, too. Because you have no idea the kind of eggheads they have thinking about, you know, ways to enslave you. And it's really true. It's just an obsession, a 24-hour obsession. How do we control the world, like pinky in the brain? And the way you do that is you create a false dichotomy of voting in America. You take the ownership of the means and the media and the people count the votes and stuff like that. And it's the same as any government ever was. But when I was go- when I was uh, when my microphone dropped, uh, I went through and I bookmarked a bunch of things. And what, uh, when I came back, I went and looked, and I realized. Every single thing, basically, in my bookmarks and Firefox is a transhumanist link. It's about the singularity. It's about technology and artificial intelligence. There's nothing in there about politics. Nothing. I think Ray, Ray got it right. He said, uh, you know, I've got, I barely pay attention to this stuff anymore. It's, 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 not, it's not the right solution. Uh, it's, it's not even a solution. So... Uh, to, to me, it's it's a much more interesting question, or or the same question, to say, uh, like, who got into the club, or who got into the swimming pool, or who got into the ice cream, who got into the presidential debate. It's this club. It, you know, it, the principle which drives the thing has nothing to do with exposing information to the people who are going to make votes in a rational way, or, or rather the rationality comes from it. We don't want you voting. And it's just that simple. People need to understand the world they grew up in is a very old world, and it's had kings and emperors for a very long time. They never went away. And we can sit here and argue about how uh, I'm going to vote for the puppet on the left is going to solve that problem, but it's not going to solve anything. Uh, It would be much wiser for people to focus on their own personal bottom lines, where they spend their money, how they relate to people, they study and research and learn, and then run the state obsolete. Right. Ray. If I just if, oh, if wait, I may just ahead, jump ben. in very quickly, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, Chris, you 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 put an extremely valid point there. Um, the fact you said it's not even a solution. Uh, if we can actually defer again to science on this. Science or scientists have a sort of a joke phrase to describe the religious um, uh, attitudes towards the creation of the world or the explanations of anything. They said not even wrong, and I said that very much applies here as well. This whole shebang is not even incorrect. It's that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, good stuff, guys. Uh, Chris, for all the kudos. I'll just continue that mantra, where um, pretty much uh, I, I hear and again all these things, uh, all these assumptions, even this discussion. Uh, and we're certainly enlightened here. Uh, I have no doubt uh, a, a level or two above um, what what the average uh, driving to eight to five is, is thinking today. But um, we, we still got a list to go in that um, 
you know, it's just that even ideas like talking about um, alternative technology, alternative fuels, as if as if it's somebody who is supposed to create alternative fuels for us. Uh, talking about all these things, uh, science, as if there are some people that are supposed to go out and discover science for us, and that uh, and that we are to mandate what they study, and we are to tell them how to study, and they are to come back and tell us some version of truth. I mean, all these things are foreign to me at this point in my life, in that I see the science that I need to understand, I see the technologies that relate to my life as something that can either make my life better, help me grow food, help me have shelter for my head, help me raise my family, help me educate my children, or they don't. And to the extent that they don't, I just don't care. Uh, and so I, if everybody would kind of start shifting into that paradigm and start start realizing um, let's let's take all these complex issues and tear them down and focus on the ones that really affect our lives in front of us, uh, in the people that we relate to, in the community that we exist in. Let's take those issues that really mean something to the happiness of the people at that level and let's see what we do about those things. Forget about all this stuff that on, that's on TV and all this that's happening in Washington, D.C. and at the U.N. Uh, and all these, I, it's just it's clear that that kind of externalized thinking about concepts that that are so far removed from the things that mean something to our happiness, they largely become nothing more than intellectual debate. And at that point, that intellectual debate, because it has no real meaning, we can go around in circles with each other endlessly, debate about, def and largely it becomes definitional understandings, and nobody realizes that, so they go back and forth arguing until they're blue in the face about a political issue of one kind or the other, and, and ever noticing in the whole thing that they have different definitional understandings of what they're talking about. They're talking right past each other anyway, and the reason that can happen because it has no practical reality in their life. It's abstract. So, you know, I'm my whole mantra is it's time to return to the community, time to focus on what's really important. And, and yeah, it's time to start relaxing, to start um, doing some things to, to go back to a simple way of life. Not that we're going to return to hunting gather times or, or Little House on Prairie times, that I even want to see that happen. But I do want to see it happen to the extent it allows us to rethink how we organize with each other as human beings. Well, Ray, I think that one of the reasons I do these shows, especially since there's so much attention being to this issue, is try to bring people to the same conclusions that you're in now. You recognize why this isn't important, and one of the reasons why I analyze it is so that people understand why it, you know, it isn't. And unfortunately, because most people are still under the spell of media when it comes to this sort of thing, it is still important to them. And the analysis is, especially when I do shows like these where we talk about these things that other people think are important, is to try to give people mental exercises to, to break their own personal matrix, so to speak, as far as the way the media, you know, makes this all look like serious business. Um, you know, and it's it, – that was like, for example, I, I bring up a lot of the lies that Romney says. And the, the funny thing is, is it's – you know, although, yeah, I, I've never liked Romney, it's not because I think that me, me, me doing that or – we know that somehow maybe getting Obama elected to make anything better. I know better than that. But it's it's important only because most people don't even spend the time to analyze, fact check, and look into the fact that the guy lies as much as he does. It's like, and it, it, the funny thing is, is that even for politicians, he's just going above and beyond. 
and he's got the Fox News echo chamber to just kind of justify all of his lies or spin them. And it's just insane how far he's willing to go. And what's been more insane is the different people, like I, like I said earlier, this is the reason why it bothers me, was the lady that I talked to, you know, while I was sitting in a coffee shop watching TV, you know, who just is totally a Romney fan. And she looks like she's a smart person, but holy crap, you know, she was totally indoctrinated. And that's, I think, is that we have to remember that, you know, this show and a lot of the things that we do in, in the space movement and our other activist movements are not just for us, you know, not just for people who've reached that level already. They're for helping other people reach that same level. So, I well, good. Sure. I mean, so, Nat, and, and, and I think you're doing a great job at kind of combining, Neil. So, so thank you. Keep it up. Um, keep inviting me on. I'm glad you do. Um, you know, but in that, you know, Let's uh, let's let's remind people of the simple truth that you don't retreat, you don't you don't achieve a major party nomination without having a proven track record of being a really great liar. <laughs> <laughs> well said. That's Touché. very true. Ray, Ray, can I can I add something, Ray? Um, it sounds like um, you either live on the land or you live in a place where you literally could have the resources to grow your own food and so on. Is that right? Yeah, basically getting getting close to it. Okay. Um, of course, the, your your viewpoint is utterly valid if you have that sort of resource, if you have that sort of environment, if you like. Um, one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking about in the Zeitgeist movement is these uh, sort of larger scale technologies and larger scale advances. And the reason we hold those valid is because a huge amount of people don't have the kind of uh, resources or know-how that you do, and they live in massive cities. And those cities for example, just to take cities, would have to be re-engineered in a more communal way rather than in a sort of individualistic way in order for them to actually work properly or well. Um, for example, farming. Uh, that many people can't all growing food in their back garden all year round. So that's that's some of the reason why I talk about technology the way I do it, and I think probably one of the reasons why you don't, because you have a different um, environment. And and actually, I'm actually quite jealous of you. I, I had, for example, a garden in which I could do that. At the moment, I'm looking at three small pots that I'm growing chilies in, and that's about it that I can <laughs> that I can do. So I mean, that's why I have some of that focus. Is that uh, yeah, some some of the solutions we talk about might seem a, a little bit um, irrelevant to you, but that's because we have also got larger problems with millions, if not, I mean, in China, what, there's a city, a mega city that now has a billion people in it. What would we do technologically about that? How would we re-engineer agriculture to be sort of in the cities rather than really far outside the city and all the rest of it? So that's, that's why some of right. these talking points might come up. Good, good stuff. I mean, yeah, and, and good. At least you are even uh, do, starting to to think about growing some stuff. And, uh, you know, and Chris uh, might be able to speak a little better to it because um, they've, they've undertaken from scratch uh, getting to the, the point they're at, you know, within the span of the little bit in the last six or nine months. So, I mean, anybody can do it if they decide that's what they're going to do. Also, um, I think that, I mean, I'm all for communal-based uh, understandings. That I, I just I see this, I see that my studies have indicated to me that in order to achieve a true consensus among a group of people, one, that group has to be small, like 10 people or less. Two, um, it, it takes a very um, deep understanding of the spiritual aspects. It takes a very uh, uh, selfless analysis of self 
removal of ego, appreciation of differences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that are missing in today's interactions with people. So until we break it down into people relearning those skills, which are the most natural skills that are within us, I believe, you know, when you're forced to wake up every day and look at the six, nine, or ten people that you have to live with that day, you're going to learn it along. You're going to start taking a hard look at yourself. You're going to learn to appreciate them, or else your life is going to be miserable in conflict. And and only going through that process at that direct in human interact level, I think that we ever start to figure out how we can then take what we've learned from it and start building larger political systems. And I'm only saying that while I'm totally ends of what uh, Venus Project, Zeitgeist Movement, what they're trying to accomplish, I, I hope they succeed. But I, what I keep seeing in it is that in order for them to succeed, they they are going to they're going to have to have people come to the, all these realizations I just mentioned about how to get along with each other and such. And to me, I don't see how that's going to happen unless people greatly change their lifestyle. So it's kind of like twenty two thing. But uh, I totally I totally respect all those projects and uh, and your perspective on that, Ben. I'm glad actually we had that exchange. Um, we are getting a bit off topic. Um, <laughs> so I mean, go ahead and uh, make a reply if you needed to, Ben, and then we'll move forward. No, absolutely. It's, uh, I, I essentially find myself agreeing with Ray. Um, it is it is both, funnily enough. It's all, almost yin and yang, which seems like a catch-22, is that uh, gradually as all these pressures are going to mount, gradually as people realize that this stuff is irrelevant, as you say, Ray, uh, that's when they, I think, first will retreat inward, will reevaluate what they have, and the, the mechanism for reevaluation would be scientific. That's almost exactly what you were sort of saying with, like, looking those people in the eye, understanding them. Uh, it's coming to a sort of a selfless understanding. That is sort of uh, as effective as you can get. So I, I do agree. That's, that is a, 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 a genetic part of the whole project, I think, yeah. And we actually have... Oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Real quick, and for any duality like a yin-yang, let's make it a trinity, you know. Uh, it's pleasing to hear Ray uh, talk your line from the North Virginia Patriots, Neil. I guess he finally found his inner hippie because <laughs> some people do really appreciate, you know, hanging out with your family and watching the grandkids stumble around the yard. And, may, uh, you know, maybe we can all go and do hula hoops or something like that. But I got to tell you. I, don't, I, I had a good upbringing. I had an. I have a lovely family. I don't want to spend every day with them. I would much rather go to the lab and conduct science with my time. And it's very, very, very important to remember. Not everyone wants to be a happy little docile sheep sitting on their one-acre land farming tomatoes. I'll do it because it sustains the meat body. But I am interested in ideas and progress and technology and. If Ray's vision, his many steps up the ladder, extends to, I'm going to sit at home. Well, maybe there's a few more steps beyond that where I say, I'm going to go exploring. I would much rather be out there learning new things than sitting back here revisiting the past. And that is a fundamental drive of humanity that isn't going away. No matter how much people believe, for their own reasons, that it would be better if everything were nice and comfortable. I'm sorry. Oh, no, and I, I understand that completely. It's one of the reasons why Ben and I advocate the eventuality that we'll be able to automate these kinds of farms, you know, and systems that we need to take care of ourselves, so we will have more time for that exploration. We actually yeah, real have, quick, Neil. Let me get let me get. Well, let more. me well, hold on one second. Um, just I want to say we have a caller on the line, and I'm going to take the call. I just don't want them to think I'm ignoring them. So go ahead and make your last point, Ray. 
Okay. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, what what I'm saying is only the the very start of I think what needs to happen next. Uh, it certainly is not. Uh, we're not talking. Like I said before, we're not. I'm not suggesting returning to uh, everybody working in the dirt and living off the land. At all. It's just it may be we have to get close to that before we can really start to restructure economic and political system that makes some kind of sense. And uh, it only it, with with the technology we have, it really should be that uh, the the tasks of the basics of survival of food and shelter really ought to take anybody uh, an hour of their time and investment and energy of any given day to have everything they need and for everybody to have everything they need if we have functioning uh, political and economic systems. So that's all. That's what I'm saying. And I think we kind of need that as a first step. All right, cool. Well, let me see what the caller has to say. Uh, caller Nip Farmer, you are on the air. Hey, hey guys, how you doing? Um, you know, uh, we're working to uh, solve a lot of these problems, and we could solve them, but uh, the powers that be, uh, some of these things, they don't. I don't think they really want them solved. Um, read an article the other day where, um, well, not an article where they tried to pass a. Uh, a law in Congress, it was uh, H.R. 875-425-S, uh, be against the law to raise your own food, store up a supply of food, share food, give away food, or save seeds. What kind of son of a bitch would put something through that like, and try to make it law? You know, it's interesting to actually go ahead and um, tell her name and where you at. Uh, my name's Neil from Alabama. Oh, hey, name's Neil from Michigan. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I know what you're talking about in regard to legislation, and there are people who are concerned about that. So it's interesting to see the way they they crack down on some of these stores that have like food in them and stuff. I don't know if you remember the the video they had California uh, raw food store that got raided with like gun as if they were showing up to you know crack a cocaine cartel or something. Yeah. So, you get an interesting point. I think that at the end of the day, it's still going to come to us, you know, needing that knowledge. Well, you know, because if, we're, if there's going to be any form of collapse or if there's going to be any form of unrest, we need to be in a position to be able to take care of ourselves. So I once again want to say we're off topic, but go ahead and make your closing statement. I want to thank you okay. for making it. Well, uh, closing statement just being that uh, we can fix it. If we have the right people in office uh, that aren't snuggled up to to industry, uh, for instance, out in California, there's a company out there. They're building a greenhouse, and uh, you, they ever, everything's inside the greenhouse, including bees and everything else. They raise 20 times the amount of food on one acre of ground by having a building covering it and regulating it and everything in, in inside uh, versus just uh, having it out in the open. So there's no there's no shortage of food unless. Uh, uh, somebody wants there not not to be any shortage of food. That's it. Thanks. No, excellent, and thank you very much for calling in. So, um, and going back here now, uh, 
it's excellent that he pointed that out, and we are going to be looking at a position where obviously eventually anything that is a threat to the establishment's hold will be something that will eventually be called into, you know, like basically called into question, that there will be people out there that will try, try to stop us from doing that. And I've heard you know, rumblings about that. You certainly see it about, you know, uh, for example, the legalization of marijuana, which has a lot of medicinal purposes, um, you know, and the way that they dumped all over that and the way the feds will show up in states where it's legal to grow it. Uh, you know, personal use, and they'll still crack on you even though the local state laws permit it. Um, you know, those are just things to be looking at here in the future. I think at the end of the day, though, knowledge is going to be the key. You know, the fact we have this knowledge, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, it's important that we get this knowledge before we get a chance. And as the court pointed out, you know, it would probably help if we didn't have politicians who were in bed that way. I do think that we will start, you know, doing a lot better as far as changing any of that kind of paradigm if we do so on a grassroots level, but be ready for the possibility that politicians won't be in a position to help us. So uh, moving on to the, the next part of the this, uh, I was given this last night, and I had originally thought I was going to do a show after the day, but I was too tired and decided to go to bed. But um, uh, as far as people who are having problems getting into the debate and people who have issues with debate, Jill Stein of the Green Party uh, actually went to the debates, uh, you know, the, the, basically the location of the debates was outside in protest alongside her vice presidential candidate, and uh, this is what she had to say. Hopefully, the sound quality will better on this clip than the last one. Yeah, and Well, we're here to stand our ground. We're here to stand ground for the American people who have been systematically locked out of these debates for decades by the Commission on Presidential Debates. We think that this commission is entirely illegitimate, that if, uh, if democracy truly prevailed, there would be no such commission, that the debates would still be run by the League of Women Voters, that the debates would be open with the criteria that the League of Women Voters had always used, which was that if you have done the work to get on the ballot, if you are on the ballot and could actually win the Electoral College by being on the ballot in enough states, that you deserve to be in the election and you deserve to be heard, and that the American people actually deserve to hear choices which are not bought and paid for by multinational corporations and Wall Street. This is why we are not hearing the critical issues in this debate. Where are young people in this debate, in this election? You'd think that the younger generation must be public enemy number one for all the bandwidth and all the attention that young people are receiving in this debate. How about those 36 million students and recent graduates who are effectively indentured servants because they are carrying around unforgiving, horrendous debt, specially customized for students so that there's no way you can get out of that debt. It will follow you around. It will garner your wages. Bankruptcy will not protect you. This is special student debt brought to you by a corporate-sponsored Congress. Where is the attention to the plight of these young people carrying that debt, facing a 50% unemployment and underemployment rate, unable to, re to pay back that debt? Uh, where is the issue of skyrocketing costs of public higher education? Where's the solution? The solution, in fact, is that we could be providing free public higher education. We did that after the Second World War in the GI Bill. 
For every dollar that the taxpayer put into public higher education, $7 was returned to the economy. This is absolutely the right thing to do instead of bailing out the banks. The fourth bailout is going on right now to the tune of $40 billion a month through this QE3, quantitative easing 3. We're not going to hear about that in the debate. We're not going to hear about the fact that all the other bailouts so far, $4.5 trillion in money dispersed, $16 trillion in free loans given to the big banks, that, that in spite of that, the crisis goes on. The banks are still too big to fail, too big to jail. It's time for the American people to hear about the solutions that can really fix this problem and to hear about the candidates that they have the right to vote for. Well, that was a great clip of uh, Jill Stein. Um, actually, one of the reasons for the quality in that was that um, it was taken by somebody's camera and put up to YouTube. So I got to put my hats off, essentially, to the independent media that covered that issue that was largely being ignored, obviously, by everyone else. Um, now, there were a couple of brief articles that I wanted to put on that. But, you know, just uh, once again saying, you know, it's like, what would be the motive of being people like this out of the debate? She had a lot of good stuff to say, and it's certainly not the kind of stuff that you want, you know, that the, the mainstream would want heard. You know, there was a lot of things that both sides agreed not to do. There was actually an article up recently about uh, how there was some kind of debate agreement uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans and uh, uh, kind of a rules of engagement, so to speak, limiting how they would approach one another. So uh, there were two articles, actually, uh, not very long articles, were searched uh, at JillStein.org, um, which is the campaign website for Jill Stein. Uh, Jill Stein, Sherry Sh uh, or Hankala arrested, called to, uh, calling tonight's debate a mockumentary. They were arrested shortly after that speech you just heard. Uh, Jill Stein and Sherry Hankala, the Green presidential and vice presidential nominees, were now forcibly prevented from entering the grounds of tonight's presidential debate organized by the Commission on Presidential Debates. Dr. Stein and Ms. Hankala will appear on 85% of the ballots on election day and recently polled 2 to 3% for consecutive national polls. The federal government recognizes Jill Stein as a qualified presidential candidate, having approved her campaign federal matching funds. Yet two women were arrested by local police when they tried to enter the grounds of Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, where the debate is scheduled to take place. Obviously, this went on last night. They are currently still in police custody. Um, there's an update I'll be reading next. But Dr. Stein and Ms. Hankala walked with Port toward the Hofstra campus at 2 p.m. Eastern today, uh, well, yesterday. We were there, met by three ranks of police officers in uniform and plain clothes. At this point, the party candidates held an impromptu press conference in which Dr. Stein called the CP today a mockumentary, saying that we are here to bring the courage of those excluded from our politics mock debate. This is a mockery of democracy. Uh, now, this is the update dated today. Free Stein and Hankala pledged to wrap up the fight for open debates. Jill Stein and Sherry Hankala are now free from police custody after eight hours handcuffed to a metal chair in a remote police warehouse on Long Island. The Green Party presidential and vice presidential candidates were arrested early today as they attempted to enter the grounds of today's presidential debate. News of the incident spread quickly around the world via media coverage carried on ABC, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Democracy Now!, and many other channels as well as via social media trending on Twitter, for example, as far away as Egypt. On her release, Dr. Stein said that it was painful and symbolic to be handcuffed for all those hours because, because that what the Commission on the Presidential Base is essentially done to – that is what the uh, Commission on Presidential Base is essentially done to American democracy – 
Steinen and Kala were eventually released into cold at 10.30 p.m. Police provided no advance notice of the risk to campaign lawyers and staff and did not allow the two candidates to make any phone calls. That's, like, illegal. Sherry Hunt called her incarceration extremely uncomfortable, but standard for what so many Americans face on a daily basis in our correction system. Um, added Stein campaign manager Ben Mansky, these arrests and this treatment are disproportionate. Uh, what does the police think they are protecting here? You know, it's funny that Jill Stein um, is, you know, a mature, small uh, woman, um, you know her can you know her vice presidential candidate is also you know a, a small diminutive woman. I cannot imagine uh, how they would be so dangerous that they needed to be handcuffed for eight hours. But um, I also can't say that I'm really all that uh, surprised. It sounded to me like you know things like this when they happen are kind of a message to you that are meant to you know it's meant to be intimidating. Um, if you haven't done anything that's actually illegal, you know, they'll lock you up for a while because they're hoping that you will be less likely to, you know, to do the same kind of protest again later. So um, I'm going to open up, you know, just comments here and also kind of open the floor a little bit once again for, you know, Ben's unique perspective. Being as how the Green Party, I guess, is a little more successful in England, and I know they're also more successful in Australia um, you know, you guys, you know, you said, Ben, that, for example, this is the first time that you guys, or recently anyways, the first time you guys have had some debates. You know, what do you think about this? You know, this candidate shows up to the debate. Obviously, she wasn't going to be able to participate, but they were ready to arrest her before she got to the building. Yeah, it's, um, it's become a depressing, uh, you know, expected uh, effect, basically. I mean, and, and it's actually it's actually extremely valuable to actually see this very differently. It's actually a wonderful thing that that's what they did, because it reminds you of what of how power is exercised, right? Without You don't have to appeal to any conspiracy theories anymore, do you? And it's exactly the same with what happened with Occupy in America as well. This wonderful movement, this huge expression, this, you know, synchronistic sort of uh, effect. How do they do it? Well, they bring out UC Davis, they bring out the, uh, the 0.8 pepper spray that's what you use on bears, um, and then, of course, when they start talking about the really important issues like, I don't know, Delaware Corporation founding and all the rest of it, that's when the truncheons come out. Thank you, we're not going to have that conversation. Uh, off you go and going to gain you to a metal chair. Everything you said is extremely important, and I would probably for her not even knowing her other positions based on what she just said. Um, education could be free. Um, you know, you can make the case that it should be or not, but it actually could be. It could technically be free. And it, it could be lifelong. It could be uh, continual throughout your life so that, you know, if you ever had to or needed to or wanted to change your direction, you would you would be so educated and could get the education quickly and effectively that you could actually do that. The fact that there's all that massive money being printed, it's not even printed, it's created as numbers, um, that is systematically devaluing the money that already exists and, you know, of course, uh, just only getting out as loans, essentially every time the QEs come around, all it means more borrowing, more debt, more servitude uh, and a worse future. It's very, very refreshing to hear that and it's such a nice, precise, clear, well-spoken way and, I, you know, the fact that they got arrested, they should be proud of because uh, it, it does remind the average American and the average Brit uh, we have we have similar things going on here as well. Um, that this is how they deal with you when they don't want it from you. It's not asking you politely to leave. It's to bring you a criminal in spite of the law, uh, 
Neil, you said that was illegal that they didn't allow to make a phone call. Well, it's illegal. Who cares about that? Um, this doesn't serve our purposes. We don't want you speaking to the, uh, to, the, to the media. In fact, we don't want them speaking to the media so much, we're going to release you randomly so that no one's ready to actually take or listen to uh, your things. I wouldn't have heard about this if there wasn't social media, like you uh, pointed out uh, as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's quite an impressive episode. Ray? Uh, kudos to Jill. Um, I, uh, you know, I once again, it, it, she, I, I'm not sure that I would agree all her politics uh, as as she's probably talking about things that would require me to contribute to this large federal or global idea she has. Uh, but what she's doing at the ground level, that kind of action is absolutely um, wonderful, and um, I'm glad to see her do it. And I wish. Um, which we, I, I, you know, Gary Johnson would never dream of doing something like that. It, that would, he would think that that would make him look, um, you know, probably unpresidential or something would be, be his approach to that. Uh, and, and as much as I'm, I'm a fan of all third party candidates, um, Gary Johnson and Jill of, of the Green Party, Gary Johnson of the Libertarian Party, of course, and, and the several others that I haven't done the research to know about who are certainly making their bid. I encourage everybody to to give these people the respect they deserve and give them your vote because that sends an important message uh, all around to the powers that be as well as to the other people in this country. As they see those, those numbers go down for the for the, the, the Republicans, and they see the numbers start to increase for uh, for other parties, it just sends an important message. So definitely, uh, kudos to Jill, Chris. Resident Futurist, I suppose. First, I'd like to tell everyone there's a documentary uh, out there uh, basically about why Jill Stein was allowed in called Who's Afraid of an Open Debate? Much like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or something like that. Who's Afraid of an Open Debate? Uh, you, your panel is filled with intelligent people, and you nailed it. Uh, they want to limit the scope of things that get discussed. And more significantly than what they're keeping out, is what they're keeping in, you know, that it's it's going to be a Romney Obama paradigm, which is hysterical because they're carbon copies of each other. But I wanted to bring up another thing, which is the Pirate Party, they're affiliated with the Pirate Bay, which is where the name from. The Pirate Bay just got rid today or yesterday, got rid of every land based server they have, jurisdictional server that they have. The Pirate Bay, which is the largest BitTorrent site in the world. Uh, has is now completely virtualized in the cloud, all on Amazon and various different cloud servers, hundreds of different providers uh, in hundreds of different territories. Uh, and in experience uh, with the WikiLeaks debacle, about the time of collateral murder, uh, Pirate Party, Iceland, and all of the people involved with that, uh, which was a very informative time, i got to admit, uh, comes back to the idea of... Who's going? To, who's moving forward into the potential capabilities of technology, and who's in the past? You want to, you know, there's a part out there, say the Constitution Party. You know, hey, by the way, Jill, welcome to Chuck Baldwin and every third-party candidate ever getting kicked out of a debate. They just decided to arrest you the for the show of it. Uh, you know, Chuck Baldwin was the Constitution Party. Well, the Constitution's an interesting 200-something-year-old document, and I'm not sure it really makes a difference to the Pirate Bay and Iceland and a bunch of these people who are extraordinarily active in technology networking and encryption. 
whether or not, you know, we apply this particular legal framework to this particular chunk of real estate. So uh, Jill's act then is a lot more symbolic than practical. And if the Green Party does want to uh, incorporate May's view of what I do, you know, all of the good environmental stuff they've been working on for a long time, they need to move it into a way where it's tough to censor them, where it's debating in other places, where they're influencing people beyond the scope of this jurisdiction. And, uh, you know, I think that's actually seeing it happen because here's uh, a YouTube documentary on Reddit and there's the video of her getting arrested and she had a statement prepared for it. That's kind of more modern approach to this media cycle and uh, media environment that uh, will work for activists like the ones who listen to the show. Yep, I agree. Now, um, that was basically pretty much everything I had for today. I just want to know, and I know that some guys, you know, obviously had to go, and we did go a little longer than I thought, but um, uh, I want to give uh, everybody an opportunity, especially, you know, um, Ben, I know you have some, a lot of great stuff that you do on your own. Uh, you've hosted some of the global radio shows, and you've done some great uh, lectures and stuff. Do you have any kind of central hub or internet presence that people who listen who maybe haven't checked out more of your work can, can see it? Yeah, this is a good question, isn't it? Um, I, I suppose the first one I have is, um, if you search my name, Ben McLeish, S-E-L-E-I-S-H, on Vimeo, that tends to be the place where I upload most of my stuff. Um, I'm going to have a pro account, though, because I've got a new interview. Well, it's not new, about a year old now. It's just sent to me in long form. It's 80 over Vimeo's free allowance, fair <laughs> So that'll be coming out at some point. But yeah, Vimeo is probably one of the ones. I also have a blog on the zeitgeistmovementuk.com as well, which I, I pop it every now and again. So, of course, you can find me on Facebook. I have an official page on that as well. All right, awesome. Now, um, I talked a little bit about you know, Chris's in the past and Ray's done in the past. And I, you, neither of you guys have any active current, though, right? Uh, well, actually, we were just talking about the very things we do have active, and because you brought it up, uh, you were talking about bringing a bunch of the media people we've met together on one group. Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating idea, and I'd be happy to participate in it, but I want to plug something else. Uh, I got memefilter.info, and you go to slash blog. It's my one of my blogs. Uh, and ironically, I just I polluted it. It's supposed to be music and ideas, and I just it had been all ideas until recently uh, where uh, I put in a post that I found on Reddit about engineering electric guitars of all things. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I stopped broadcasting a lot because um, it takes a lot of time and uh, I've been talking news and analysis and it's interesting and you, you know, great audience of people who are really, really sharp and on top of the world works. But I wanted to stop and uh, do something a little different for a while. And so I started working on this concept called Temetics or Technology Memes. Uh, if you're familiar with Memetics and we're talking Susan Blackmore and that whole line that ideas are replicators and we're the hosts, uh, which is a fascinating line of reason. So I'd encourage everyone to go over there and uh, read through the very thick technical prose to describe uh, to work progress, so thematic theory, which explains how uh, technology will change humanity in irreversible ways, and there's no sense to complain about it, and until you get your definition straight, you won't be able to do anything except for a uh, lag behind the curve. 
But once you flip your thinking, then it's all up. Uh, it's a brave new world of technological capabilities that you can acquire for yourself if only you change how you think. And they can check that out. You, know, you said you had a, a meme filtered info? Slash blog. blog. All right, excellent. And uh, Ray, are you working on anything right now? Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, plug um, the uh, naturalrightsfoundation.org because of the thing that, yeah, that I'm that I'm interested in seeing where it goes right at the moment. It's that because uh, that's that's the bottom line. It's uh, in order to solve many of these greater issues, people are really going to have to start come back to a simpler understanding of simple simple things that nobody can disagree with. That's principle non-aggression and non-aggression principle, however you want to say it. So. Um, Natural Rights Foundation is basically taking that principle and applying it to various basics uh, of, of what we look at in society today as norms and uh, just gives you a, learning that foundational aspect of thinking will give us ways to solve all kinds of problems. NaturalRightsFoundation.org. Yeah, actually, it's ironic that you put that up because uh, Aaron uh, Stormclouds Gathering uh, just contacted me because he was my available. Uh, we're going to be doing a, an episode of E Radio where we're just talking about the Natural Rights Foundation, and um, I hope all of you guys who are on the call and I actually need to ask you about it as well, Ben. And we could do that sometime off the air. Um, you know, it sounds like it's going to be a great project. It's kind of a, a melding lot, so to speak, for activists of different groups to kind of get together on the things that they actually agree about um, to have meaningful dialogue. Uh, you know, when we can kind of get together and, and share our ideas in a you know in a place uh, where the culture of that place is in such a way to facilitate good communication of ideas, concepts, um, and I've already enjoyed some of the conversations we've had so far. You know, so remember though when you check that out, I mean the Natural Rights Foundation. Um, you're going to talk to some people you don't agree with absolutely on everything. You're going to talk to some people you do agree with. So it's not just zeitgeist-oriented. It's not libertarian-oriented. It's not anarchist-oriented. You know, there. It, in fact, it's it's kind of designed to not be any of those things, but welcome all of those people. So just something to think about here for the future, naturalfoundation.org. Um, so that's all I had for V-Radio today. I'm actually, you know, as you just said, we're going to be on the Natural Rights Foundation. Uh, I'm still working on an interview with Jill Stein. I'm also working on an interview with someone who is a former employee and whistleblower for Monsanto Corporation. We'll be on an episode of, future episode of V-Radio. And one thing to remind everybody, um, V-Radio, I'm going to try to do it every day. Do, do me a favor and, and give me a hand. You know, if you see any piece of news that you think is relevant to the uh, activist perspective that you would like to see talk about in these kinds of roundtable discussions of people from, you know, various walks of life and from around the world, uh, please, you know, link those articles to me. You can find my Facebook group, Fan V-Radio, by going to my website, v or v minus radio.org and clicking links. Uh, Fans of V Radio is a good way to get a hold of me. Skype is a good way to get a hold of me. You know, and if you find any links that you think would be good for news, please hesitate there. Um, I'm going to play us out with a uh, George Harlan quote. I'm going to warn you guys uh, who are listening or are accustomed once again to know profanity uh, that Mr. Carlin is one of the toxic. One of the one of the individuals who allows me to to do a little bit of cussing. So uh, the name of this video is kind of a compilation of different things that George has said, and it's the illusion of choice. The Americans seem to think that the party's going to last forever, and the holiday goes on and on, and they don't really see the error of certain things. I mean. Uh, 
Thomas Rainsford Lounsbury was an educator in the 19th century, and he said, it never ceases to surprise me at the infinite capacity of the human mind to resist the introduction of useful knowledge. And that's what it is. People know better. People sense better. But they go against it. They just think there's they no consequences. It, it kills me that it's a steady downhill slide. Uh, you know, we're headed, this country is really finished. I mean, it really is technically finished. It's just a matter of playing out the end game. Well, that's true. It's true. You can see it. You can smell it. Anyone who can't see it or smell it doesn't understand. Yeah. Uh, there's a medical term that they use in hospitals when a person has no future left on this planet. They can't be helped anymore. Uh, and they put it on the chart, CTD, circling the drained. And that's what we're doing. We're slowly circling the drain, and, and, and the circles get smaller, and they get faster. I enjoy it. Personally, I, I don't have a stake in the outcome. Right. I personally enjoy this, this circus that I've been invited to. I, I, I've often said when you're born in the world, you're given a ticket to the freak show. When you're born in America, you're given a front row seat. And I couldn't enjoy it more. And I'm talking about the fact that a, a war is uh, old men protecting their property by sending young men or rich old men protecting their property by sending middle class and lower class young men off to die. It always has been. It's all about owning things. All of this back and forth and debate implies that there are really choices in this country, that we really have choices, freedom of choice. Well, it's it's an illusion. Army. Americans are made, and, and, and having, they're having trouble filling the slots in this all-volunteer army. I wonder why. Let me say one thing about choice. There is no real choice. They say freedom of choice. You're given an illusion of choice. Americans are meant to feel free by the exercise of meaningless choices. You don't have, you know what right. the choices are in this country? Paper or plastic, a pile or window, smoking or non-smoking. Those are your real choices. You began to say, you began a sentence a little while ago with it. it it's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that rich white men don't care about poor black people, period. So they're not oh, high on their list. They're not high George. on their list. George, they're I not love you, high. George. They're not, I don't nonsense. care if you love me or not. That's they're not, not high on the conscious or the no, subconscious list of those people who are in charge of things in this country. The owners, forget these, these foolish elections, the owners of this country don't care about the poor in general. The owners and they of this don't country? Care about what are we going... Wait, wait, is this t Karl Marx talking to me? The owners of this country are no. the voters of this no, country. No, you're wrong about that, my friend. Are, are, aren't the owners of this wrong. country the voters in this country? No, no, elected they're, George no they're not. Listen, politics, these elections are a charade. It is a charade. Oh, okay. it is, it is, they are meant to... Well, I'll tell you, listen, just listen for a minute. Learn a little something. The ele elections and politicians are in place in order to give Americans the illusion that they have freedom of choice. You don't really have choice in this country. I have an addendum to that. The real looting in this country takes place in the transfer of the wealth from the poor to the rich. I'm sorry that you don't like class and the truth, my friend, but you're just stuck with it. I'm a, class I'm a, I'm and the poor have been systematically looted in this country. The rich have been made richer under this criminal, fascist president and his government. <laughs> You know, George, George you, I think you know, do you know what fascism is? Fascism you know what fascism is? America, you know what Nazis are? Not wear, no, wait, yeah. sir, wait, you sir. Know when fascism comes you know to America, it will are? not be in brown and black shirts. It will not be with jackboots. It will be Nike sneakers and smiley shirts. 
Smiley, smiley. The, the, the fascism. Germany lost the Second World War. Fascism won it. Believe and actually, me, my friend. Fact, George, you think is that looting is, is looting okay if there's no if there's no hurricane? First of all, property. Can you break I don't, into no, tweeters whatever you want. We're talking I, I, about I have no problem with theft. May I be honest? No with problem. You? With I have that. no problem with theft. True. Well, George is defending looting, but I have no. It's, it's, I have no stake I, in it. I have I, no stake I, in the outcome. I think. I, th I think. I think you have to give him credit for one thing. You have because to give him credit. They're out in the open the now. They're out in the open now. They're not even trying to conceal it anymore. The owners of the country have. To, they bought their elect, got their election. They said we're going to get this election. We put you people in that court for a reason. All right, now back the time to, to earth us. for you now. We, yeah, forget all that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> They're out in the open. They're, open. No. they're openly driving the bus, and we're all in the back. There's because of the energy policies need, that were created here in California, need, not as a result of a conspiracy, need, but you because... You don't need a formal conspiracy right. when interests converge. These people went to the same universities and fraternities. They're on the it's same boards of directors. They're in the same country clubs. They have like interests. They yes. don't need to call a meeting. They know what's good for them, it's and they're getting it. And there used to be seven oil companies. There are now three. It will soon be two. The things that matter in this country have been reduced in choice. There are two political parties. There are a handful of insurance companies. There are about six or seven in information things. But if you want a bagel, there are 23 flavors because you have the illusion. You have the illusion of choice. Right. You don't get the real importance. There's no freedom of choice. That's a great point.